Chapter 20 of Volume 2 of The Mysterious Island. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim D. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. Translated by William Henry Giles Kingston. Volume 2, Chapter 20 Things happened as Pencroft had predicted, he being seldom mistaken in his prognostications. The wind rose, and from a fresh breeze it soon increased to a regular gale, that is to say, it acquired a speed of from 40 to 45 miles an hour, before which a ship in the open sea would have run under close-reefed topsails. Now, as it was nearly six o'clock when the Bonadventure reached the gulf, and as at that moment the tide turned, it was impossible to enter. They were therefore compelled to stand off, for even if he had wished to do so, Pencroft could not have gained the mouth of the Mercy. Hoisting the jib to the mainmast by way of a storm sail, he hove to, putting the head of the vessel toward the land. Fortunately, although the wind was strong, the sea, being sheltered by the land, did not run very high. They had then little to fear from the waves, which always endanger small craft. The Bonadventure would doubtlessly not have capsized, for she was well ballasted, but enormous masses of water falling on the deck might injure her if her timbers could not sustain them. Pencroft, as a good sailor, was prepared for anything. Certainly, he had great confidence in his vessel, but nevertheless, he awaited the return of day with some anxiety. During the night, Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett had no opportunity for talking together, and yet the words pronounced in the reporter's ear by the engineer were well worth being discussed together with the mysterious influence which appeared to reign over Lincoln Island. Gideon Spilett did not cease from pondering over this new and inexplicable incident, the appearance of a fire on the coast of the island. The fire had actually been seen. His companions, Herbert and Pencroft, had seen it with him. The fire had served to signalize the position of the island during that dark night, and they had not doubted that it was lighted by the engineer's hand. And here was Cyrus Harding expressly declaring that he had never done anything of the sort. Spilett resolved to recur to this incident as soon as the Bonadventure returned, and to urge Cyrus Harding to acquaint their companions with these strange facts. Perhaps it would be decided to make in common, a complete investigation of every part of Lincoln Island. However that might be, on this evening, no fire was lighted on these yet unknown shores which formed the entrance to the gulf, and the little vessel stood off during the night. When the first streaks of dawn appeared in the west horizon, the wind, which had slightly fallen, shifted two points and enabled Pencroft to enter the narrow gulf with greater ease. Toward seven o'clock in the morning, the Bonadventure, weathering the North Mandible Cape, 
entered the strait and glided on to the waters, so strangely enclosed in the frame of lava. Well, said Pencroft, this bay would make admirable roads, in which a whole fleet could lie at their ease. What is especially curious, observed Harding, is that the gulf has been formed by two rivers of lava, thrown out by the volcano, and accumulated by successive eruptions. The result is that the gulf is completely sheltered on all sides, and I believe that even in the stormiest weather, the sea here must be as calm as a lake. No doubt, returned the sailor, since the wind has only that narrow entrance between the two capes to get in by, and besides the north cape protects that of the south, in a way which would make the entrance of gusts very difficult. I declare our bonadventure could stay here from one end of the year to the other, without even dragging at her anchor. It is rather large for her, observed the reporter. Well, Mr. Spilett, replied the sailor, I agree that it is too large for the bonadventure, but if the fleets of the Union were in want of a harbor in the Pacific, I don't think they would ever find a better place than this. We are in the shark's mouth, replied Neb, alluding to the form of the gulf. Right into its mouth, my honest Neb, replied Herbert. But you are not afraid that it will shut upon us, are you? No, Mr. Herbert, answered Neb. And yet this gulf here doesn't please me much. It has a wicked look. Hallo, cried Pencroft. Here is Neb turning up his nose at my gulf, just as I was thinking of presenting it to America. But at any rate, is the water deep enough, asked the engineer, for a depth sufficient for the keel of the Bonadventure would not be enough for those of our ironclads. That is easily found out, replied Pencroft, and the sailor sounded with a long cord which served him as a lead line, and to which was fastened a lump of iron. This cord measured nearly fifty fathoms, and its entire length was unrolled without finding any bottom. There, exclaimed Pencroft, our ironclads can come here after all. They would not run aground. Indeed, said Gideon Spilett, this gulf is a regular abyss, but taking into consideration the volcanic origin of the island, it is not astonishing that the sea should offer similar depressions. One would say, too, observed Herbert, that these cliffs were perfectly perpendicular, and I believe that at their foot, even with a line five or six times longer, Pencroft would not find bottom. That is all very well, then said the reporter, but I must point out to Pencroft that his harbor is wanting in one very important respect. And what is that, Mr. Spilett? An opening, a cutting of some sort, to give access to the interior of the island. I do not see a spot on which we could land. And in fact, the steep lava cliffs did not afford a single place suitable for landing. They formed an insuperable barrier, recalling, but with more wildness, the fjords of Norway. The Bonadventure, coasting as close as possible along the cliffs, did not discover even a projection which would allow the passengers to leave the deck. Pencroft consoled himself by saying that, with the help of a mine, they could soon open out the cliff when that was necessary, and then, as there was evidently nothing to be done in the gulf, 
he steered his vessel toward the strait and passed out at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Ah, said Neb, uttering a sigh of satisfaction, one might really say that the honest negro did not feel at his ease in those enormous jaws. The distance from Mandible Cape to the mouth of the Mercy was not more than eight miles. The head of the Bonadventure was put toward Granite House, and a fair wind filling her sails, she ran rapidly along the coast. To the enormous lava rocks succeeded soon those capricious sand dunes, among which the engineer had been so singularly recovered, and which seabirds frequented in thousands. About four o'clock, Pencroft, leaving the point of the islet on his left, entered the channel which separated it from the coast, and at five o'clock the anchor of the Bonadventure was buried in the sand at the mouth of the Mercy. The colonists had been absent three days from their dwelling. Ayrton was waiting for them on the beach, and Jup came joyously to meet them, giving vent to deep grunts of satisfaction. A complete exploration of the coast of the island had now been made, and no suspicious appearances had been observed. If any mysterious being resided on it, it could only be under cover of the impenetrable forest of the Serpentine Peninsula, to which the colonists had not yet directed their investigations. Gideon Spilett discussed these things with the engineer, and it was agreed that they should direct the attention of their companions to the strange character of certain incidents which had occurred on the island and of which the last was the most unaccountable. However, Harding returning to the fact of a fire having been kindled on the shore by an unknown hand could not refrain from repeating for the twentieth time to the reporter, but are you quite sure of having seen it? Was it not a partial eruption of the volcano or perhaps some meteor? No, Cyrus, answered the reporter, it was certainly a fire lighted by the hand of man. Besides, question Pencroft and Herbert. They saw it as I saw it myself, and they will confirm my words. In consequence, therefore, a few days after, on the 25th of April, in the evening, when the settlers were all collected on Prospect Heights, Cyrus Harding began by saying, my friends, I think it is my duty to call your attention to certain incidents which have occurred in the island on the subject of which I shall be happy to have your advice. These incidents are, so to speak, supernatural. Supernatural, exclaimed the sailor, emitting a volume of smoke from his mouth. Can it be possible that our island is supernatural? No, Pencroft, but mysterious most certainly, replied the engineer, unless you can explain that which Spilett and I have until now failed to understand. Speak away, Captain, answered the sailor. Well, have you understood, then said the engineer, how was it that after falling into the sea I was found a quarter of a mile into the interior of the island and that, without my having any consciousness of my removal there. Unless being unconscious, said Pencroft, that is not admissible, replied the engineer. But to continue, have you understood how Top, 
was able to discover your retreat five miles from the cave in which I was lying. The dog's instinct, observed Herbert. Singular instinct, returned the reporter, since notwithstanding the storm of rain and wind which was raging during that night, Top arrived at the chimneys dry and without a speck of mud. Let us continue, resumed the engineer. Have you understood how our dog was so strangely thrown up out of the water of the lake after his struggle with the dugong? No, I confess, not at all, replied Pencroft. And the wound which the dugong had in its side, a wound which seemed to have been made with a sharp instrument, that can't be understood either. Let us continue again, said Harding. Have you understood, my friends? how that bullet got into the body of the young peccary, how that case happened to be so fortunately stranded there without being any trace of a wreck, how that bottle containing the document presented itself so opportunely during our first sea excursion, how our canoe, having broken its moorings, floated down the current of the Mercy and rejoined us at the very moment we needed it, how after the ape invasion, the latter was so obligingly thrown down from Granite House. And lastly, how the document which Ayrton asserts was never written by him fell into our hands. As Cyrus Harding thus enumerated, without forgetting one, the singular incidents with which had occurred in the island, Herbert, Neb, and Pencroft stared at each other, not knowing what to say, for this succession of incidents, grouped thus for the first time, could not but excite their surprise to the highest degree. Upon my word, said Pencroft at last, you are right, Captain, and it is difficult to explain all these things. Well, my friends, resumed the engineer, a last fact has just been added to these, and it is no less incomprehensible than the others. What is it, Captain? asked Herbert quickly. When you were returning from Tabor Island, Pencroft, continued the engineer, you said that a fire appeared on Lincoln Island. Certainly, answered the sailor, and you are quite certain of having seen this fire, as sure as I see you now. You also, Herbert? Why, Captain, cried Herbert, that fire was blazing like a star of the first magnitude. But it was not a star? urged the engineer. No, replied Pencroft, for the sky was covered with thick clouds, and, at any rate, a star would not have been so low on the horizon. But Mr. Spilett saw it as well as we, and he will confirm our words. I will add, said the reporter, that the fire was very bright, and that it shot up like a sheet of lightning. Yes, yes, exactly, added Herbert, and it was certainly placed on the heights of Granite House. Well, my friends, replied Cyrus Harding, during the night of the 19th of October, neither Neb nor I lighted any fire on the coast. You did not, exclaimed Pencroft, in the height of his astonishment, not being able to finish his sentence. We did not leave Granite House, answered Cyrus Harding, and if a fire appeared on the coast, it was lighted by another hand than ours. Pencroft, Herbert, 
and Neb were stupefied. No illusion could be possible, and a fire had actually met their eyes during the night of the 19th of October. Yes, they had to acknowledge it. A mystery existed. An inexplicable influence, evidently favorable to the colonists, but very irritating to their curiosity, was executed always in the nick of time on Lincoln Island. Could there be some being hidden in its profoundest recesses? It was necessary at any cost to ascertain this. Harding also reminded his companions of the singular behavior of Top and Jup when they prowled round the mouth of the well which placed Granite House in communication with the sea, and he told them that he had explored the well without discovering anything suspicious. The final resolve taken, in consequence of this conversation by all the members of the colony, was that as soon as the fine season returned, they would thoroughly search the whole of the island. But from that day, Pencroft appeared to be anxious. He felt as if the island which he had made his own personal property belonged to him entirely no longer, and that he shared it with another master to whom, willing or not, he felt subject. Neb and he often talked of those unaccountable things, and both, their natures inclining them to the marvelous, were not far from believing that Lincoln Island was under the dominion of some supernatural power. In the meanwhile, the bad weather came with the month of May, the November of the northern zones. It appeared that the winter would be severe and forward. The preparations for the winter season were therefore commenced without delay. Nevertheless, the colonists were well prepared to meet the winter, however hard it might be. They had plenty of felt clothing, and the Musmans, very numerous by this time, had furnished an abundance of wool necessary for the manufacture of this warm material. It is unnecessary to say that Ayrton had been provided with this comfortable clothing. Cyrus Harding proposed that he should come to spend the bad season with them in Granite House, where he would be better lodged than at the corral, and Ayerson promised to do so as soon as the last work at the corral was finished. He did this toward the middle of April. From that time, Ayerton shared the common life and made himself useful on all occasions, but, still humble and sad, he never took part in the pleasures of his companions. For the greater part of this, the third winter which the settlers passed on Lincoln Island they were confined to Granite House. There were many violent storms and frightful tempests which appeared to shake the rocks to their very foundations. Immense waves threatened to overwhelm the island, and certainly any vessel anchored near the shore would have been dashed to pieces. Twice during one of these hurricanes, the mercy swelled to such a degree as to give reason to fear that the bridges would be swept away and it was necessary to strengthen those on the shore which disappeared under the foaming waters when the sea beat against the beach. It may well be supposed that such storms, comparable to water spouts in which were mingled rain and snow, would cause great havoc on the plateau of Prospect Heights. The mill and the poultry yard particularly suffered. The colonists were often obliged to make immediate repairs 
without which the safety of the birds would have been seriously threatened. During the worst weather, several jaguars and troops of quadrumana ventured to the edge of the plateau, and it was always to be feared that the most active and audacious would, urged by hunger, manage to cross the stream, which besides, when frozen, offered them an easy passage. Plantations and domestic animals would then have to be infallibly destroyed without a constant watch, and it was often necessary to make use of the guns to keep these dangerous visitors at a respectful distance. Occupation was not wanting to the colonists, for without reckoning their outdoor cares, they had always a thousand plans for the fitting up of Granite House. They had also some fine sporting excursions, which were made during the frost in the vast Tadorn Marsh. Gideon Spilett and Herbert, aided by Jupp and Top, did not miss a shot in the midst of myriads of wild duck, snipe, teal, and others. The access to these hunting grounds was easy, besides, whether they reached them by the road to Port Balloon, after having passed the Mercy Bridge, or by turning the rocks from Flotsam Point, the hunters were never distant from Granite House more than two or three miles. Thus passed the four winter months, which were really rigorous, that is to say, June, July, August, and September. But in short, Granite House did not suffer much from the inclemency of the weather, and it was the same with the corral which, less exposed than the plateau, and sheltered partly by Mount Franklin, only received the remains of the hurricanes, already broken by the forests and the high rocks of the shore. The damages there were consequently of small importance, and the activity and skill of Ayrton promptly repaired them, when some time in October he returned to pass a few days in the corral. During this winter, no fresh inexplicable incident occurred. Nothing strange happened although Pencroft and Neb were on the watch, for the most insignificant facts to which they attached any mysterious cause. Top and Jup themselves no longer growled round the well, or gave any signs of uneasiness. It appeared, therefore, as if the series of supernatural incidents was interrupted, although they often talked of them during the evenings in Granite House, and, they remained thoroughly resolved that the island should be searched, even in those parts the most difficult to explore. But in an event of the highest importance, and of which the consequences might be terrible, momentarily diverted from their projects Cyrus Harding and his companions. It was the month of October. The fine season was swiftly returning. Nature was reviving, and among the evergreen foliage of the conifers, which formed the border of the wood, already appeared the young leaves of the Banksias, Deodors, and other trees. It may be remembered that Gideon Spilett and Herbert had at different times taken photographic views of Lincoln Island. Now, on the 17th of this month of October, toward three o'clock in the afternoon, Herbert, enticed by the charms of the sky, thought of reproducing Union Bay, which was opposite to Prospect Heights, from Cape Mandible to Claw Cape. The horizon was beautifully clear, and the sea, undulating under a soft breeze, was as calm as the waters of a lake, 
sparkling here and there under the sun's rays. The apparatus had been placed at one of the windows of the dining room at Granite House, and, consequently, overlooked the shore and the bay. Herbert proceeded as he was accustomed to do, and the negative obtained, he went away to fix it by means of the chemicals deposited in a dark nook of Granite House. Returning to the bright light and examining it well, Herbert perceived on his negative an almost imperceptible little spot on the sea horizon. He endeavored to make it disappear by reiterated washing, but could not accomplish it. It is a flaw in the glass, he thought, and then he had the curiosity to examine this flaw with a strong magnifier, which he unscrewed from one of the telescopes. But he had scarcely looked at it when he uttered a cry, and the glass almost fell from his hands. Immediately running to the room in which Cyrus Harding then was, he extended the negative and magnifier toward the engineer, pointing out the little spot. Harding examined it. Then, seizing his telescope, he rushed to the window, the telescope, after having slowly swept the horizon, at last stopped on the looked-for spot, and Cyrus Harding, lowering it, pronounced one word only, a vessel. And in fact, a vessel was in sight off Lincoln Island. End of chapter 20, end of volume 2, recording by Jim D.